I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcast. Jonathan, it's snowing in Jerusalem. And yeah. I'm missing out because I am, as you probably heard, in Tel Aviv. No, put, I mean, put the microphone down, run into the car <laughs> and go now to the snow. And you have children, they want to be in the snow. Great. Thanks for that guilt trip uh, just right off the bat. I'm just saying, you know, you know this, that snow in Jerusalem is this phrase that kind of enthralls Israelis, right? Because it's it's a rare enough occasion to be really exciting when it happens. It's not so rare as to like not leave any sort of record in living memory. So like in my life, I think this happened three or four times when there's like a substantial amount, when temperatures drop to the, you know, to the fact that there's a substantial amount of of snow in Jerusalem. It's beautiful. Missing out. I would love to see that. Tell me, um, this is the first question anybody always asks when they, when someone says it's snowing. So is it settling? I know settling <laughs> has a different meaning in the Israel yes. context. Yes, But is it, right, so there's actual snow for snowballs and snowmen and snow women. All of that, all of that and more, oh. yes. And, you know, Jerusalem is is a beautiful city. I'm speaking as a former Jerusalem might hear. And, it, you know, everything's like covered in this white layer of snow, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament and the Kotel. And, you know, my sister in New Jersey would just call this winter. But um, but still, it's like this, you know, it, it gives us sort of this respite from our usual Israeli drama. And the news yesterday was all about snow. Uh, you know, I saw a lot of people pretty upset about, you know, the news in Israel taking this kind of shift into talking about the weather. But it made us feel like a normal country for a little bit. And, it's, and I'm guessing it's because nice. it's so rare, everything then just seizes up. So no one yep. drives, no yep. one goes to work, everyone just talks and obsesses about snow. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. You described, I mean, we still have to do the news, but still. You know, it's kind of this sort of everything slows down a little bit and the roads to Jerusalem closed uh, in the morning. And, you know, I can't believe that after 44 episodes, I finally dragged you into talking about the weather. <laughs> yes, no, this is my default. <laughs> Such a cliche, an Englishman and a person in Israel, and they're talking about the weather. So snow in Jerusalem, I mean, it just sounds beautiful and romantic. But you're there in Tel Aviv. Does it ever snow in Tel Aviv? Well, there was this really extreme story of 1950, and there was snow even in Tel Aviv. There were extreme weather conditions, but since then, no. So, you know, Jerusalem is our ba- our better chance, I think. It's a big moment, one to celebrate. We do not have snow in London, and we haven't for, I don't think, for a while. We haven't had it this winter, not for a year. Here, we have an obsession, and people are not really able to concentrate, but not because they're outside throwing snowballs or tobogganing. But instead, the game, and I say this as you and I speak, because it may have changed by the time people hear this, but there's been a kind of Beckett, Samuel Beckett-style drama (laughs) in the week of waiting, not for Godot, but for Sue Gray, who is a British uh, civil servant. She's the number two in the entire civil service, public servant, servant, and she has been tasked with investigating. And it sounds, to anyone who's not immersed in this, it will sound ridiculous. She, her task is to investigate parties, and specifically birthday, a birthday party, and others that were held in Number 10 Downing Street. Normally, this would not be worthy of an investigation. But in this case, these were parties that happened during coronavirus lockdown. When here, like everywhere, there were very strict rules um, barring gatherings, uh, you know, periods where you could not even really be with one other person, even outside, uh, right at the beginning of the lockdown, May 2020 and afterwards. And it has been the running dominant story in this country for two, three weeks, actually even more, it went back uh, in December, of revelations of gatherings and parties. And the shifting story has been these shifting explanations 
from Boris Johnson, who at first said there were no parties and then said, well, they were, but I wasn't there, and then said, okay, I was there, but I thought it was a work event. And now uh, he, the most uh, bizarre defence that has come so far was that on upon hearing that there was actually a birthday party for the Prime Minister in the Cabinet Room with more than 30 people, again, when people could not see anybody else, a cake was brought out and one of Boris Johnson's defenders has said later that he was, in a sense, ambushed by cake. <laughs> <laughs> ambushed by cake is like, it's, it makes you think of a B-movie like Attack of the Killer Cake. The man was ambushed by cake. What do you want? Let the man have his cake. It's well, just, let them eat cake. I and, mean, you know, he, he's, <laughs> his wife is known as Carrie. And so people have been talking, making little means of Carrie Antoinette, let them eat cake. Oh, but it really, it's funny because the, the battle for the story has been to persuade people, and it ha- frankly has not taken much persuasion, that this is serious business. And people accept it as serious for mm-hmm. this reason, that while they were partying, uh, uh, the rest of the country was not only just in lockdown, but it meant that there were people who can point to those specific dates on the calendar and say, and again, social media has stepped forward, where people have stepped forward and said, look, my mother or father or loved one, husband, wife, died on that day and I could not even be in the room with them. And, you know, uh, it's not. it was a cousin of mine who died in that period in April of 2020 and her own husband had to say goodbye to her on the telephone. There was nobody allowed to see or contact another person. And that is why this story has penetrated so deeply. It's really unlike other political scandals, not just in Britain, but I would say even in other countries, where often they were quite arcane. Mm-hmm. And ex- scandals often require some explanation, uh, you know, where you have to get into the weeds of a financial deal or a transaction, and you have to draw out the policy principle no one has needed to do that here. It is so basic that the man who was writing the rules for the rest of the country did not follow the rules, even in his own house where those rules were being uh, drafted. And that has really hit very deeply and hard. And so this investigation uh, by Sue Gray is going to deliver her findings, not really a verdict, just more or less the findings of fact. And politics in this country, like it's, it's suspended there in Jerusalem for snow, it's suspended here as people wait. <laughs> So I have a lot of questions. Yeah. About <laughs> what you Good. just said. I mean, what the one thing I, I I want first of all, not only a Sue Gray sort of public inquiry, but also a police uh, uh, investigation, right? So how you know, out of all of these sort of pitfalls that Boris Johnson is facing, um, we should say also maybe the danger of being ousted by his own party. Like, what is the most imminent danger for him? What would he be uh, incredibly concerned about? Uh, in, in light of this party gate that you... Well, the, that things explaining. are so... You're absolutely right to mention the police, and it's in a way perhaps telling that I didn't mention that straight away, because in any normal scandal, the, yeah. the minute you, the police, are investigated, that it can be terminal for a politician. This is so strange that, in a way, there were people in Downing Street who, when it came out that there was a police investigation, were like, OK, that kind of works for us, because it <laughs> meant they could deny for a while, or rather block for a while, questions because they can say of course i'm not allowed to talk about that that's subject to a police inquiry and the police tend to take a long time Mm -hmm. and so their hope i think was okay then maybe it delivers its findings or in march april who knows what may have come up by then you know or even later uh, in the year whereas the sue gray thing once it's out the 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 procedure is he is meant to go to the house of commons and answer Mm -hmm. questions about this report uh so both of those are serious the challenge is as you said just then uh 
very much within his own party. You know, it's not a presidential system. It's a parliamentary system, uh, just as in Israel. And so he, Boris Johnson, is only prime minister if MPs in the House of Commons have confidence in him. And that really means his own side, conservative MPs. And there is a constant rumble that they are gathering the it's not signatures, it's the letters that they have to mm-hmm. send in that would trigger a no-confidence vote. There only have to be 54 MPs have to feel that they want a vote of no confidence, and then there will be one. And uh, and that so that is maximum peril for him. During Brexit, you had that Boris bus with, uh, we're going to give, forget the EU, we need to get give £350 million, right, to the National Health Service every week. That was obviously a lie. It worked. Why is this lie, if it is indeed a lie, you know, why is it being so, why is it the, the thing that could can actually uh, bring this downfall? Because of what you're saying? Because people kind of react to it viscerally? I mean, yes, you've absolutely got to the heart of it. I think the thing about the lying is being, as being central to his political persona because he was able for a long time to deliver it with a wink and a smile and, oh, there goes Boris. You know, he wasn't held to the same standards uh, as other politicians. And this is where all the kind of the messy hair and the untucked shirt is all part of that, of signalling, I don't play by the normal rules. And therefore, for a long time, that worked for him because people didn't expect him to comply with the normal rules and the whole shtick of pretending that he's forgotten what he was going to say. And it all meant that different rules applied to him. And it has been a hallmark of his career. He was fired from his first journalistic job on The Times for making up a quote. And he's just managed to fail upwards. This is different um, because I think it goes to that point about it not being arcane. It goes to something very emotional. I think people didn't mind if the lying was at the, for example, with a wink at the expense of those bureaucrats in Brussels Mm -hmm. or even other MPs and politicians. But now this is lying to you. This is lying and making a fool of you, the British person who, even though you wanted desperately to be with your dying husband or wife in their last breath was not there because you followed the rules. He is laughing at you because he wasn't going to follow those rules. And that's the first time that's happened. He's broke, you know, before he broke the rules of political tradition or the rules laid down by Brussels, fine. Mm -hmm. But now he's made a fool of the public. And a very potent symbol has been the image of the Queen who buried her husband, Philip, uh, last year after a marriage of 73 years long and had to sit alone. And that was a really potent image of the bereaved head of state. Even she complied with the rules. And it has emerged that the night before that funeral, they were partying in Downing Street. I mean, Boris Johnson himself was not there, but he sets the culture. There was literally a suitcase full of booze and there was a DJ and the country, I think it's fair to say, is pretty appalled by all of that. And so, yeah, for the first time, his mendacity has hit the sort of people who normally were prepared to turn a blind eye to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was just, since we want to move on to talk about Russia and Ukraine, I'm like thinking to myself that maybe Boris Johnson is secretly hoping for this to happen, right? Just so something happens that kind of moves the, shifts the headlines from him. Oh, um, so we, we are going to talk about Ukraine. I mean, don't don't joke. That's exactly what the, the, the trick he was thinking is. How can the opposition be asking questions about cake and parties when I'm focused on terribly serious <laughs> things? And they are terribly serious things. I want to, you know, re- switch, switch around a bit because I wanted to ask you about this. This is, you know, obviously it is the big issue globally uh, right now, even if people here are blinded by... 
by cake. And, um, and that is this sort of looming uh, Russian military presence on the Ukrainian border. And the sense that it's a matter of, if not, a matter of when, not if, that the Russians are going to invade Ukraine, or at least have a military incursion into Ukraine. Here, I think it's fair to say nobody thinks that's a great thing. I mean, the opposition to Putin, apart from a few kind of quite fringe voices on the left, most people think uh, bad thing. And the only conversation is about how you possibly stop Putin doing this, um, given that, you know, he did invade Crimea in 2014. So my question back to you is how are people seeing this in your snow-covered neck of the woods? <laughs> well, look, I mean, Israel obviously is in a different position uh, when it comes to uh, Russia, I'm, I'm kind of imagining if there was a cartoon, it would be of the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, like under the blanket with the caption being, wake me up when this is over, because Israel is in this sort of unfortunate situation, right, where we uh, are kind of between the U.S. and Russia. Um, we need, we kind of, I don't want to say we desperately, but we really need Putin's uh, goodwill so we can continue to act uh, with a free hand in Syria. That means Israeli Air Force can attack Iranian targets and can attack armed shipments to Hezbollah. Um, and we also need Russia's cooperation in Vienna um, across the table with Iran and to, to cooperate with the United States. And if this happens, then the United States and Russia won't cooperate on this. And of course, the U.S. won't have the bandwidth to even uh, deal with, with Iran. I'll add to that, Jonathan, the fact that you know this, there's a huge uh, uh, community of Russian immigrants uh, to Israel, obviously also Ukrainian immigrants, but a smaller group. So this is all putting us in kind of an uneasy position, uh, right? I mean, the, we have to say the bond between Israel and, and the U.S. Is, is a very special one and shared values like the code name that every politician in the United States and Israel says, and we're dependent upon them in every way. There's no love lost between the state of Israel and Putin. But we need him. So being between the U.S. And, and him is a little bit like, you know, choosing between uh, dad and angry stepdad. And it's not a good way. It's not a good place to be. It's so interesting hearing all that. Um, the idea of Vladimir Putin as angry stepdad really works. <laughs> I mean, he looks the part. <laughs> I was going to say part. bad cop, good pit cop, but somehow the dad stepdad worked. I don't know it, why. It okay. works completely. <laughs> now, what's interesting about that is about Israel's orientation in the world, because Israel makes a big point of being a west part of the west and a western mm -hmm. democracy and yeah. it partly gets judged harshly internationally because it sees itself that way and so people say yeah sure we don't make a fuss about human rights abuses in saudi arabia or china because israel's part of the west and yet what you've described there makes it an outlier within the mm -hmm. west because with the possible exception of germany which has this relationship and dependency on energy supplies from russia um, the rest of the West feels like it can be pretty unambivalent in its hostility to Putin and Russia. It's not a hard one to work out where they stand. And to the idea of needing to sort of retreat under the duvet, thinking, wake me up when this is over, <laughs> certainly there's a feeling of, oh, my God, what are we going to do about this? But not any kind of conf feeling of, uh, of being conflicted. So that says something larger than just about Ukraine. It says something about where Israel sees itself in the world. Yeah, I mean, well, think about that. Look. Putin, we know this, is a, is a man who can play a very weak hand uh, very well, right? So he exploited this vacancy that the United States and the rest of the world left in Syria. He saved Bashar Assad and he made, it created a situation in which Israel is completely dependent on coordinating. I mean, there are no Assad forces left in Syria. It's all Putin's forces. So he, he, Israel has to coordinate. It can't annoy uh, uh, the, the Kremlin to the extent that it has 
you know, somehow to to limit itself in what it's doing in the region. It's a very again, it's a it's a it's it, I'm not it's not a comfortable position to be in, but that is that is where we are. Again, the Syria thing interesting because I think a lot of people have switched off that and don't even think it's ongoing. But of course, just as there have been and uh, constant shooting in a uh, shooting war going on in Ukraine for the last seven, eight, nine years. I mean, it didn't stop with the annexation of Crimea. It is an ongoing thing. Similarly, as you say, there is, you know, armed confrontation in Syria. And I think the thing that's interesting that people don't perhaps realise is this point that Israel operates and is very careful, as I understand it, to hit Iranian targets, but absolutely to never go near, lay a glove on right. Russian assets in Syria. You talked about the annexation of Crimea. This is, and then the United States, the Obama administration had sanctions against Putin. Putin reacted with what he did in Syria. So again, this is a flexing of muscles that we could see in all kinds of areas if this happens again. And so so Israel is, is being quite uh, wary. As for Biden, I have to say, you feel for the guy. I mean, what can he do in this situation? He's sort of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Because if he effectively allows this thing to happen, they, the Republicans are ready to say, you're the man who lost Afghanistan and Ukraine within a, you know, a year mm-hmm. uh, of being president. And I heard, I think it's Mike Murphy on Hacks on Tap, which is one of your favourite podcasts as well, True. saying, you know, they're going to start measuring him for the Jimmy Carter cardigan, <laughs> you know, if he allows this to go through. On the other hand, if he comes down really heavy and puts yeah. a whole lot of sanctions, the Russians will then hit back by, for example, cutting off energy supplies to Europe, and no one's going to thank him for that either. And Putin, of course, be. chooses his timing very well. He chooses the timing that looks not, you know, when the American president looks weak to the rest of the world, when the German new leader in Germany uh, uh, looks less uh, a tough guy than the uh, last uh, chancellor, Angela Merkel. So so he's choosing his timing very, rather well as well. Smart player. We've talked about timing, and so we should talk about the day that today mm-hmm. is. As you and I speak, it is Holocaust Memorial Day, January the 27th. 77 years since the liberation uh, of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And this has become the day around the world. I know Israel has its own day. Um, we talked about, we've talked about that. It's just planted a whole lot of questions in me about the way the Holocaust is seen, in a way not so much to us, but to the rest of the world. I think we should listen in to Miki Levy, who's the Knesset uh, speaker, speaking in front of uh, the Bundestag, the German parliament, on this day and saying Kaddish, the mourner's uh, prayer, and basically breaking down and, and crying. Let, let's listen to that. That completely, um, the first time I heard it, it completely broke me up actually, because hearing Kaddish said anyway has a almost kind of reflexive power, I think, on Jews, just hearing the prayer. Mm-hmm. Hearing it said in the German parliament is, again, powerful. But it was the fact that he himself was very, it was very clearly genuine. The mm-hmm. He was overwhelmed by it. I mean, he couldn't really get to the end of it. And it struck me as very unstaged. I don't know anything about Mickey Levy, really, to be honest, as a politician, but that I thought that's a real person up there. Yep. That's That's very real what happened to him it's funny it came after something which which was 
you know, not moving and the opposite because it just made you very dispiriting. And that is a decision by the Tennessee School Board voted to drop the graphic novel Mouse from its um, curriculum and from, I think, even from libraries and so on, uh, certainly for access to children. People who know, I mean, have you read Mouse by Art Spiegelman? I mean... I think it's a proper it's, masterpiece. It's a masterpiece, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we use the same word. Yeah. It's yep. a masterpiece. It's an absolutely extraordinary piece of work. It's, for people who haven't read it, it's in two parts. It's a graphic novel. Uh, so it looks like a comic book, and the Jews in the story are mice, and the Germans are cats. And so it's the experience and the mem- sort of memories of, his, of Art Spiegelman's father this book has been, you know, voted down by the Tennessee School Board because there's some inappropriate words and imagery. There's the odd sort of swear word and the imagery. There's nudity, mouse nudity. I mean, and somebody very helpfully on social media went through the book and found the images. And there's a couple of images where the Jews are lining up and obviously are shirtless, yeah. and that's nudity in the eyes of the Tennessee School Board. That plus Mickey Levy in the uh, in the German Parliament made me just think, what is it exactly? we're asking from or asking for rather from the rest of the world when we say right today's the day to remember the holocaust i don't know you know i think there is this i don't know if to call attention but we discussed this a little bit when we spoke to dara horn in her book um um people love dead jews first of all maybe we should say international holocaust memorial day i don't want to sound didactic or too blunt it isn't important for us it's important for the world. We live with this every day. I think it's important maybe for non-Jews to realize this. This is something we live with, right? All the time. Every day. We, we don't, Holocaust we don't need right, we don't need the memo, right? It's yeah. it's there. Um and and I think that on the one hand, we really want everyone to understand this is a very particular catastrophe that is specific to Jews. And this has to be a particular, unique story. And above that, what what we see, I think, is an attempt to reach out to other people and to teach this story and to teach its lessons. And that's how you make it universal. The problem with the universality of it is you can very quickly, it leads you to, you know, what, again, what Dara Horn was talking about, making it a parable about people feeling good about themselves, which it shouldn't be in any way, right? And she talks about that famous line from Anne Frank, which somehow, you know, is supposed to make you feel good about humanity because deep down people are good. And, you know, and and she makes the point of saying if you had asked Anne Frank in Bergen-Belsen, she would probably not say the same thing. So that is, I think, I don't know if we're giving a guide to the perplexed and what is a right way of saying or right way of acting on this day, but it's definitely realizing that there are two layers here. That sort of helps me because I, I I definitely feel the tension between the two and I'm aware of potentially asking for something that is impossible to give from the you know non-Jewish world, which is on the one hand, I want them to remember and understand the uniqueness and singularity and exceptional nature of this event. And, you know, nothing compares to it. You can't say... Let's just pick on one guy just because it's an egregious, <laughs> egregious example. Yeah. But, you know, Robert Kennedy's junior, uh, Robert Ken- the great Bobby Kennedy, his son, RFK Jr., 
What terrible damage to that name, by the way. But he is a an big-time anti-vaxxer, and he really gets off on making these comparisons. And he did it again the other day when he said he went even further. He didn't say, oh, the insistence that people take the COVID vaccine is as bad as the Nazis. He said it's kind of even worse now, because at least with the Nazis, you could escape across the Alps. There were places you could go. But now, with the surveillance and 5G and the vaccine, they can always find you. And people went after him again. He said, oh, and he again apologised. But this guy keeps doing it. Yeah. So that's an extreme example. But it actually happens even people who are of goodwill and who are not, you know, badly motivated, they reach for this example all the time. There will be people doing it right now about Putin saying, we mustn't appease Putin. We learned that at Munich. You know, every, every dictator is always Adolf Hitler. Every event is always the Holocaust. And I really stand against that because I think it demeans and cheapens um, what we, uh, you know, what, what we want to remember. On the other hand, my worry is that if um, people do not you know, look to the Holocaust as a moral lesson, then for one thing, bad things can happen, but also that eventually something gets forgotten if people don't use it as a kind of moral guide. So I sort of find myself wanting both. You, you know, it is the ultimate example of evil, but don't keep overusing it as the ultimate example of evil. And the reason why I said I think what you, what you said helped is maybe the sequencing is the point. Tell it as a Jewish story first, then mm -hmm. you can draw the universal lessons. Yes, and, I, you know, I've, I've thought uh, a lot about this, and I think the, the problem, again, with the universality of it is that you sort of put under the umbrella a lot of other stories, and you kind of inevitably compare these catastrophes, and you shouldn't compare them. They're different, and they're relevant to different uh, uh, stories and to different people, and I kind of think the more time passes, the more I think of Holocaust education, and you think of how to talk to your kids and what to teach, I would talk even about not going universal, but about the small communities, about the towns, about the lives before this. And that's how you communicate, I hope, to a younger generation, this story. Find the child that is exactly your age. Yes, and, um, and, and to make sure they are real and particular. Because the risk of saying there's universal lessons is, and this is where Dara Holm was so right, but it can sort of bleach out the and erase the very specific nature. And I have seen it. I mean, I've noticed it today with lots of people doing very well-intentioned messages and tweets and yeah. everything where it's just this is what, you know, we will commemorate the Holocaust when millions of people died and people's capacity for evil. And you think, yeah, but there were specific people yeah. here and they were a specific group and they were Jews and you need to say that somewhere in there. And a few people have sort of fallen down on that. But I, I suppose what I'm saying is I get that we are quite difficult to please on this subject as Jews because... <laughs> on this subject, I like, on this subject. And mm. other subjects. On, on other subjects, we are very easy to please. If you are non-Jewish and listening to this podcast, it can be your guide on how to uh, <laughs> not annoy uh, Jews and do... Yeah, we've, we're very low maintenance people <laughs> on every other respect. But on this... We're quite high maintenance. It's, isn't that I think, that classic line from When Harry Met Sally? You're the worst kind. You think you're low maintenance, but actually you're high maintenance. That is what that is the Jewish people in oh, a nutshell. Is, you know that makes me go back. Want to go back to that film? What a brilliant film, by the way. But should we do some awards, Yonid? I think so. Let's change the mood. Give us a mensch award. Good, good. Let's let's have some some love here. Um, <laughs> uh, well, let's have. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do a When Harry Met Sally, but Stephen Breyer. <laughs> 
I'm having what he's having because he has made the right judgment call here. That is, he is retired from the Supreme Court and he's done it while there is a Democrat in the White House uh, and while Democrats uh, have a razor-thin and almost technical uh, majority in the Senate. Why that's important is because he's a great liberal judge uh, and uh, he's one of the three on the court and he was worried that if he didn't, he was going to make the mistake, and I think it's okay to say this because we poured a lot of love on her memory rightly, but he was not going to make the mistake made by Ruth Bader Ginsburg a year ago. Uh, she died in office and therefore allowed Donald Trump to nominate her successor, and that did change the balance of the court. And, you know, Stephen Breyer has realised that you nobody lives forever, and your legacy if it's going to endure, you need to take care of it. And he has done that, I think, by this move. I mean, I'm not saying it can't go wrong. As a warrior, uh, you know that about me. I still think, you know, the I wouldn't put it past Republicans to play fast and loose and somehow delay this till the other side of the midterms where they will perhaps be in charge of the Senate. A lot of fuss made, incidentally, when he was appointed to the court. And a big deal was made of the fact that he was the first Jewish nominee for a long time. Uh, so he's making way. And there's even talk that there could be a Jewish successor. And so this vacancy uh, created by Stephen Breyer's retirement gives Joe Biden the job of nominating a successor. And he, Joe Biden, had said that in, uh, I think, back in the presidential campaign, that if he got to uh, nominate someone. He wanted to nominate a black woman. There has never been a black woman on the Supreme Court. But even there, there may be some Jewish interest. One of the runners and riders is a judge by the name of Leandra Kruger, who is black and Jewish. And therefore, this would be, in the words of the forward, uh, the American <laughs> Jewish paper, a demographic twofer. Uh, two for the price of one if he appoints Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of California, Leandra Kruger. Uh, to fill Stephen Breyer's seat. She's the daughter of a Jamaican immigrant mother and a Jewish father. So who knows? But anyway, mention the week, but Stephen Breyer. Still, if it nominates a woman, they would have four women in the Supreme Court. And I will quote uh, the fabulous uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said when she was asked what point would there be enough women uh, in the Supreme on the bench, she said, when there are nine. Okay, we need to give a chutzpah award. Uh, tradition you. is tradition, my friend. Yes, and always me somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I you know we were talking about this in recent uh, episodes about why Israel is so expensive. Uh, we spent I think at least one or two episodes discussing this. So this week, uh, I would like to nominate food companies in Israel. Now we know nearly everyone in Israel and elsewhere t took a financial hit uh, because of COVID, and income has gone down, and in some cases disappeared. You know, obviously, our era of economic uncertainty and Israel's food companies ever attuned to the needs of their customers. This reacted by um, upping their prices. So, you know, this is even if decide, they decide that because of COVID, the profits diminish. I mean, the best way to kind of redress the situation is by raising prices. So I think that they deserve, really deserve the chutzpah uh, nomination this week. And Israeli consumer has to pay the price quite literally for there, well, no other way to say the greed of the big food corporations. Yeah, no, I think that is a well-deserved chutzpah prize. That is a nerve and a cheek um, by those companies. So yes, that prize goes to them. Um, I think we have reached the end of our little session. No, I have a few more questions about Boris Johnson, but I'll just call you and ask you the rest. Yeah, we can, do, okay? we, can, we can do that <laughs> in our own time as we wait um, 
for that big moment. People are calling it Fifty Shades of Sue Gray. That's the name of the official. Uh, <laughs> I don't think funny. it's going. I don't think funny. it's going to be. Yeah, well, I mean, do, I don't. I never read Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know if they did something kinky with cake, but if they did, I then I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, I knew that you hadn't read it. It was so obvious. Um, I definitely haven't read it. But we our next think, episode will be dedicated to when Harry met Sally. Obviously, just yeah, no, that's that's got to be a two part special. <laughs> um, so we say thank you, and if you well, you're going to say thank you to everybody because you do. I'm the polite. I'm, I'm the say, polite one. You're just British. Yeah, and, but I'm going to say if you've enjoyed it, review, rate, spread the word. And we shall say thank you to Lior Friedman and Rom Atik and Omer Primat, Irad Eshel, and Richard Myron. I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. Jonathan, thank you. We'll see each other next week. See you, Yoni. Listener.